This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you've found the most relevant information. And it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Businesses increasingly offer employees wellness plans, where in exchange for setting and sharing fitness goals, workers pay less for health insurance. A few companies have gone beyond reward to punishment in circumstances where employees aren't meeting health goals. Is that a good idea? I'm Stephanie Francis-Warren, and that's what we're discussing today at the ABA Journal podcast. Joining me are Gary Mathiason, a partner at Littler Mendelssohn, Helen Rubenstein, a staff attorney with Minnesota's Public Health Law Center, and Harvey Swartz, a plaintiff employment lawyer with Boston's Rogers, Power, and Schwartz. He represented Scott Rodriguez, who lost his job with Scott's Lawn Service for smoking tobacco cigarettes. The 2007 federal action was dismissed on summary judgment and in 2009 settled for an undisclosed amount. Harvey, what is the current case law advising employers on what they can do with wellness plans, and how do the 2009 Department of Labor guidelines weigh in? There isn't a whole lot of case law when it comes to employers uh, firing employees because of health reasons. The Scott's case that I had involved an employee who tested positive in, in a urine test for nicotine and was fired. The case wound up being decided on a technical question of whether he had actually ever been hired, uh, so the merits wasn't reached. The law clearly supports employers having wellness programs and offering rewards, what I call carrots, to employees. Where the law is still up in the air is whether employers can fire employees who fail to meet their health goals. And Gary Mathiason, your firm does a fair amount of employment law compliance work. If a client told you they wanted to not hire individuals who smoked and get rid of employees who wouldn't stop, what would your advice be? Well, I think my first question would be where they are located. There are some states where you have statutes that deal with lawful conduct off work, uh, some of these statutes, I think, were subtly put into place 15 years ago, almost in anticipation of today, and that's going to make a difference in the answer. Assuming that the state law prohibition isn't there, I think there is a channel available where an employer could refuse to hire a non-smoker or deal with a current employee who smokes. I think the standards would be different, and this is an evolving area of the law there are wellness programs that, depending again on their state and location, that prohibit hiring somebody who smokes. There's a practical side to this, though, that can't be overlooked. Normally, these programs aren't that harsh in the sense of yes or no. There'll often be an option where there's an attempt to help the person end smoking or to help a person reform so they can reapply for work. But I think that's a direction that we're going to have to go in if we're going to control health costs. Half of the total cost of uh, medical care is injury and illness that's preventable. And no matter what we say on this podcast, there's a tsunami coming that has to push in the direction of wellness programs. 
and we're trying to find out how to navigate that and establish it in the best possible way under the current law, which, as Harvey just explained, is under development. Helen, what are you seeing in Minnesota in terms of how employers want to handle their wellness? Are you seeing lots of carrots or maybe some sticks? Well, in Minnesota, we're seeing a great deal of interest by employers in worksite wellness programs that the message is getting out that programs are effective in improving workforce health and saving money. I work with a program funded by the state of Minnesota called the Statewide Health Improvement Program that works with employers throughout the state on worksite wellness programs, including providing small grants to assist them in establishing programs. And we've seen terrific responsiveness from both large and small employers to this. In terms of whether they're using carrots or sticks, I think there's an attempt to use both. Minnesota is one of the states that has a, a law, sometimes, they're sometimes known as smokers' rights laws, that prohibit employers from refusing to hire or discharging em- employees because they engage in certain legal conduct on their own time. So this is a state where, in most cases, would be difficult for an employer to refuse to hire a smoker or discharge a smoker. But the law here, and I believe in other states as well, has some exceptions. And one of those is if it's a bona fide occupational requirement for the employee's job. So for instance, fire departments could uh, refuse to hire firefighters who smoke off the job because they need to have excellent lung capacity for their jobs. Another exception is if there's a conflict of interest or perceived conflict of interest with the employer's business. One issue, this is a question for all of you, an issue that maybe is starting to come up, is a privacy issue. Is more businesses don't want employees who smoke tobacco cigarettes. Are there some concerns out there about what other type of behaviors employees might engage in that employers don't want? How does that figure in? It's a classic slippery slope. This is the argument that gets made. It might start with smoking cigarettes is dangerous for your health, but there are wellness programs that give give incentives for cholesterol reduction, for weight reduction. If I I were an employer who who was into this issue, I'd check the Facebook page and make sure that my potential employee isn't bungee jumping or flying small airplanes or riding motorcycles. It really is blurring the line between uh, the workplace and, and employees' private lives. I find it very troubling. And Gary, what do you think about that? Well, there's clearly a continuum, but there are types of conduct, and I think sedentary activity or lack of activity, diet and smoking, there are some personal habits that are so impactful on health that there are now dozens of studies that establish that investing a dollar in a wellness program that's aimed at these particular targets will bring back $4, $5 in benefit. But it's not just benefit to the corporation, it's benefit to everybody. And I view it as as much as possible making it voluntary and incentives. But at some point that works to a maximum point and you go over the line. We went through this same debate on seatbelts. Seatbelts, first of all, did they work? Then the studies established they did. Then voluntary encouragement. Then the plaintiff bar came up with a brilliant theory of contributory negligence. And finally, it's now law in most states. It's tough love, but it's at such a price that we pay as a society and as a family 
that I think that that is the clear direction that we're going in. The new health care law is a very good example of that. There are several provisions in it that encourage wellness programs, and there's a drive right now by regulation to increase the incentives, which are really just the opposite side of a penalty. You can either have them as an incentive where you get a little bit more, or you can say you get the full amount minus this amount if you don't participate in the programs. And that's moving from 20% up to 30%. It's law by 2014 at 30% with the discretion by uh, the administrative agencies to push it all the way up to 50%. This is the direction we're going in. And Helen, what do you think about the issue of if privacy could come in and what people can be penalized for as employees? Well, obviously it's a balancing act and it's, I think, what in the public health policy world, what we're trying to do is not so much force people into certain behaviors, but to make the healthy choice the default choice. So creating opportunities for people so that it's easier for them to choose not to smoke or not to eat unhealthy foods, that sort of thing. I think we have a number of protections in the law for people. One that we've already talked about are the consumable products acts that we talked about smoking, but it, it applies to any legal conduct, really. So the employer who, who doesn't want their employee eating Big Macs, if there's that type of law in place, they wouldn't be allowed to, to do that, even though they may want to put into place a program that gives them rewards for healthy eating or gives them coupons or discounts for selecting a healthy food in the cafeteria. And I'm assuming from a public policy perspective, you probably see all the time that these wellness programs don't work unless the employee embraces it and does it for themselves and realizes how good they feel when they skip the Big Macs. Exactly. And I think what we're talking about is a cultural shift here. I was looking at a study on return on investment in wellness programs, and as Gary said, you know, I think the studies have shown over and over again that there is a positive bottom line for having these kinds of programs. But the one that I was looking at was a study that the CDC did of the bus company in Austin, Texas. And in a program with uh, the company had, I think, around 1,300 employees, and only about a quarter of the employees participated in the wellness program, but they still saw about a two and a half percent positive return on investment there. I think it's always a challenge for employers that the the first people that are going to sign up for the wellness programs are the healthier ones and the last ones are going to be the people with chronic illnesses. But I think the more it becomes part of the culture, the more that more people will be drawn into it. And we've talked about with the wellness programs and with tobacco, how do the issues for employers in terms of what's prudent to do change when it focuses on things that are somewhat related to weight, like cholesterol, you know, or blood pressure or things like that? My concern is with this blurring of the line between private life and work life. Businesses are in the business of selling insurance or manufacturing cars or representing clients. They're not in the business of making their employees better people, either ethically, religiously, politically, 
or, uh, or, or medically. And employees are, are hired to do a job. And now we have employers saying, you've got to get your cholesterol down by 20% in six months or you're fired. You've got to, you've got to lose 50 pounds, change your body mass index, or you're fired. It's getting from, from a workplace to a plantation. I see it as a violation of employee rights. Well, Harvey, are you actually seeing situations like that or hearing of them where they say you have to lose weight or you'll be fired? Well, I, I, I'm certainly seeing the distinction made where in, in the hiring decisions where employers won't hire smokers. This uh, Testing for nicotine is becoming uh, much more common and is, is fitting right in. It's just one more box to check off with, with, with the test for illegal substances. The case law on weight, obesity has to be, you know, morbidly gross obesity mm-hmm. before it's considered to be a, uh, a disability and, and falls under the disability discrimination statutes. But somebody who's just fat um, is not going to get hired in some places. I see it a little differently in that, There is a deep concern on the part of employers about productivity and about costs, and health care costs have gotten to a point where it can mean the difference between being able to stay in business or go out of business. I can't think of anything more at the heart of an employer's operation than something that could dictate whether it can or cannot stay in business, and that's what we're facing with today's health care costs. Being able to establish that a program that you would put in place actually reduces that number, allows you to stay in business, increases productivity, reduces uh, absenteeism, is profoundly impactful on the employer side. We balance this against individual privacy. I think the third-party vendors, of which there's a growing number, have helped in that regard because usually the uh, health information can be kept very confidential from the employer. And then we use the word incentive because I think people respond better to incentives, but the incentives really are also penalties. And uh, we're looking in the not-too-distant future at the potential of 50% of the cost of what the company would normally contribute toward your medical plan being uh, an incentive slash a penalty, however you want to look at it, I think that is a lot of force driving people toward behavior that's going to benefit them them and their coworkers and their company in the long run. The question that's probably right on the cutting edge of where the law follows is can you go further and actually – terminate somebody based on these circumstances. I think that right now is unsettled or very difficult, and we're going in stages, but I think that's the direction that we're moving in. Gary, are there any cases in the pipeline right now on point with that? Oh, I think there are. There aren't many, though. Harvey correctly indicated that it's an area with not much litigation currently. I would have expected to see more by this time, and we probably will, Mm -hmm. but we haven't seen it yet. An interesting wrinkle in the law is that in the in the states that have these Consumable Products Act laws, employers are prohibited from refusing to hire or firing employees that engage in, in these activities. But once an employee is hired, there's the HIPAA non-discrimination provisions, mm-hmm. 
which basically say that you can't charge more for health coverage for an employee based on the health factor. So when employers put into place wellness programs, one of the effects of that is that if an employee is unable to receive an incentive because of the health factor, then the employer has to offer an alternative. So for instance, for smokers, uh, even though smoking or nicotine addiction isn't considered a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, under HIPAA non-discrimination, nicotine addiction is considered a health factor. And so before an employer could raise the premium contribution for a smoker, they would have to offer them an alternative, which presumably would be some kind of cessation program. And the employer would never actually even have to stop smoking as long as they continued to participate in the cessation program. Harvey, I, I know it was mentioned by you and by Gary that there's not a lot of cases out there right now, and as Gary said, that's unusual. Do you have a sense of why there's not a lot of cases challenging the wellness plans? I don't think wellness plans have reached the stage, or at least not many of them, where employers are firing employees who, who fail to meet some, some sort of health guidelines. I think what's becoming more common now is not hiring. And unless there's a state statute protecting uh, employees from being discriminated against because of legal activities, outside of the workplace, and, and the state statutes cover about half the states, and they vary all over the map from just cigarettes to any legal activity. There isn't a lot of legal relief for not being hired, and, and I don't think there's a lot of firing going on just yet. That's the next step. Okay. Yeah, that is, that is the next step as these plans become more established, and I see it as an evolution, and so we probably will get some test cases in the near future. Meanwhile, I think a lot of this issue is also going to be worked out by regulation, probably less so by legislation. And uh, we've had multiple regulations dealing with these issues lately. The HIPAA regulations are an example. You also have a complication from the regulations dealing with genetic information. It used to be pretty standard in the um, process you would have an incentive for somebody to get a wellness coach or to go through a preliminary physical. And part of that routinely would be collecting medical history. Well, medical history is considered part of the genetic history of the individual and has to be offered only on a voluntary basis. And there was quite a battle in getting the regulation to work. So far, it seems to be working, but it is strictly voluntary to provide that information. Gary, are you seeing law firms use wellness plans much? And if so, Absolutely. what sort of participation uh, are they getting from their attorneys? Well, all I can tell you in detail about is uh, we have 800 lawyers who do employment and labor law all over the country, and we launched a very intensive wellness program starting three years ago and gradually have been expanding it, and we're getting about 85% participation. We just had a shareholders meeting and it was optional, but on the first day of the meeting, we had uh, people set up through the wellness company that we use that would take blood pressure, weight, and have a discussion of medical history, all private, none of it reported back to the employer, and we got over 50% participation in that activity. Harvey, 
What are some reasons an employee should not participate in a workplace wellness plan? Right. It depends on the plan. Look, if there's nothing wrong with being healthier, and I don't think anybody wants to be unhealthy, I would I would only caution an employee if it's if it's a plan that has you know severe repercussions if you don't do well in it. If an employer is going to hold it against you for not losing the weight, for not quitting smoking, for not getting your cholesterol down, if it's going to be seen as not being a team player, if it's going to be seen as not being somebody who uh, with management potential because you don't have self control, or if heaven forbid these goals are, are set as threats, lose the weight or you're fired then I'd caution an employee to get involved in it. Okay. Since you handled the Scott's case, do you get many calls from employees about their wellness plans? There, there was a while when, when the Scott's case especially was, was in the press when I was getting a fair number of calls. So I've, I've got to say, again, it was a lot more failure to hire kind, kinds of situations than an employee's being fired. You know, I got a few calls from folks who, who claimed they were fired because they smoked. I get a lot more from people who uh, who apply for jobs and are out now told we don't hire smokers, and that's the more common situation. You know, there's nothing new about this whole trend. I was reading an interesting book recently about Ford Motor Company and Henry Ford, and in 1913, Ford doubled the wages for his employees, and in return for that, Ford what he called the sociological department that had 150 people who made surprise visits to employees' homes to see whether they, they were drinking or gambling or uh, buying on credit was a fireable offense. And that only lasted for seven years because there, there were newspaper editorials about invasion of employee privacy. And, Helen, are you seeing many circumstances where employees have a lot of misconceptions about their work wellness plans? I think there is concern about the privacy issue, particularly as it relates to taking health risk assessments, that even though these are set up in a way that the employer doesn't see the individual results, I, I think that there is a certain amount of fear out there that if employees put down what they're what kind of health problems they're having, whether it's smoking or use of alcohol or what have you, that that could somehow get back to the employer. And I think that's a big contributor to the reason that employees who could probably most benefit by wellness programs don't take advantage of them. I have a question for all of you. What do you see down the road for employee wellness plans? Helen, what do you think? Well, Gary already mentioned one provision in the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act that allows employers to increase the value of incentives to employees. Some of the other provisions of that act are that the director of the CDC has to provide technical assistance and consultation and other resources to evaluate employer-based wellness programs, hopefully with the result of increasing the overall quality of those plans. And then also there is a provision for grants for small businesses mm -hmm. to provide comprehensive work, workplace wellness programs. 
and that would be for companies with fewer than 100 employees who launched their programs after the date that the health care reform bill was enacted in March of last year. One caveat to that is that the Act authorized $200 million in appropriations over from 2011 to 2015, but that money has not been appropriated. And given the current budget situation, it remains a question whether it will. Harvey, what do you think will happen down the road of wellness plans? I think I think what we're seeing now is that more and more companies, and especially since they're outside businesses that uh, are managing these programs, are seeing the financial benefits of having a healthier workforce. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I think what we're going to see in the future, though, is at first we're going to have the more motivated people participate in these. As time goes on, it's going to be the, the people who uh, aren't interested in trying to lose weight, aren't interested in trying to quit smoking, or have been trying it for the last 30 years and have failed and, and don't want to fail again. And w- I think we're going to see these programs become more and more coercive on employees. We're going to see them become mandatory, and we're going to see the penalties become more and more strict. And then that's going to lead to litigation. The courts are going to have to set the limits. Well, on the other hand, do you think, though, I think perhaps one reason a lot of people fail with improving their health is this shame and guilt issue that goes along in our country with being unhealthy, and perhaps if wellness plans could figure out a way to get the employees to do it for themselves and to feel good about themselves and to own it, maybe that could be a successful wellness plan. Uh, Gary, what do you think? Well, I think that's definitely true. I, I also think, like, gradually we've reduced the number of smokers in our society, There's a cultural factor that adds to that, but I think the workplace can play an important role in providing increased incentives or, as Harvey indicates, more forceful encouragement that just causes you to pass over that point where you're you it's like trying to stay on a diet. If you have a friend that's on the diet at the same time, it provides encouragement. There's one critical point that I think casts a picture on the future. When the health care bill was in Congress and being debated, there was interest in the fact that if we're going to do anything about health care premiums in the cost of medical care in this country, we need to do something about injury and illness prevention. The uh, Budget Office couldn't quantify that, and accordingly, not a lot got built into the legislation on that. But two important things happened. One is a study by the Center for Disease Control. It's a two-year study to provide some of those metrics, and then one by the Government Accounting Office. And I think once that information comes back, and if it's consistent with the hundreds of other studies that are out there, I think government has no other direction to turn in but to find a way of working on preventable injury and illness. That's 50% of what could be a $16 trillion bill. And uh, the workplace becomes one place where regulations can be put in, in practice and programs developed that will encourage strongly these habits. And I think Harvey and I are going to have a lot of work over the next decade Uh, working out the edges of that where privacy concerns, discrimination concerns are balanced against the benefits of the program. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's everything I have for today. I want to thank you all so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. 
This ABA Journal podcast was brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you've found the most relevant information. And it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com.